If you enjoy this podcast and would like to support us in exchange for exclusive access, early access and so, so, so much more, check us out over on Patreon. You can find us at www.patreon.com slash aaopera. Hello and a big warm welcome back to AA Opera Podcast episode 73. 73! So we're trying something new. If we slow down in our discussion a little bit, it's because we are trying to make sure that we don't blow out the microphone while we're recording. So apologies, but in a couple weeks, this will be nothing. You'll be like, whoa, they're professional podcasters. Is this normal? I think this is how people actually record podcasts. Oh, is this like how TV people have it as well when they've got the little thing in the ear? Yeah. (gasps) So Well, no, that's for them to tell... The producers. Yeah, the producers to tell them like... She, uh, she lied about that. She's yeah, actually... we haven't we haven't got one of those yet. No, oh, one day. <laughs> but Abby, tell me, how has your week been? <laughs> my week has been actually really nice. Um, I got my second jab. Yay! Snap, 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 snap. Um, but I it did knock me out. Like I was out for the count, down for the nap. I don't even know the sentence anymore. Oh, wow. But that was, you know what? It was worth it. Mm. And everyone, I, I'm going to say it, everyone should go get their jabs. Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. What about you? How was your week? Um, well, I've been kind of knocked out for the count for another reason. I've aged about 50 years in the last week. Um, and I'm going for physio later today, my first ever physio session. Um, I've just got this trap nerve or something in my neck I can't turn to the left so I'm I'm like a robot um oh ah <laughs> I just went I just went um but apart aside from that I'm absolutely fine um, that's grand yeah so I've just been plodding on and then just taking the odd time where I just get the pillows off the bed and go and like rest my head up but I did bring you a um Massage pillow for, for an enjoyment. I'm so excited to try that after this podcast recording. <laughs> Thank you very much. But you know what's also really exciting? It is the 24th of August and tickets for the new season of the Royal Opera House have been released this morning and we are going to buy tickets to go to the opera in person. It's a big day. It's a big day. I'm, I think I'm actually going to get really excited. Yeah, I've got a slight tear in my eye. Because <laughs> the last time we were there was for Alice's Adventures Underground, which I feel like we have mentioned so many times on this podcast all through COVID because it was the last thing we both saw. Yeah. So it will be amazing to go back there. And we are going to try and go back for La Traviata to see one of our guests. <laughs> we'll stay stumped for now but the season finale next week guys stay tuned because it's tuned. a good one but on to this week's guest harry baker you might recognize that name because harry has featured as our composer of the month all through august and we've heard some amazing tunes from him i've had my feet tap into all his jazz stuff yeah it's amazing um so it was great to sit down and have a full interview with Harry and hear about his composing career. So let's have Harry take it away. Hello, hello, and 
we are so excited to introduce you guys to Harry Baker, but we're going to actually let him to do his own introduction. So Harry, can you introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you both for having me on the show. Um, yeah, my name is Harry Baker. I am a pianist and composer uh, and I... Yeah, broadly, I, I work with with jazz musicians and some classical musicians, and um, compose music for for groups as well. So, um, work you know as a composer away from the instrument, but also performing my own compositions and improvisations. I guess with with um, other sort of improvisers and other creatively minded musicians. Um, yeah, that's basically me. <laughs> that's uh, that's great, and we can't wait to hear all about that on today's episode. Um, but we always ask our guests this question. Can you tell us what your first experience of opera was? Yeah, so yeah, my, I mean, my experience of, of opera um, is probably a bit later in terms of when it started from from maybe some of the other guests. I mean, I, I you know, I've been a, a musician engaged in classical music for quite a long time. I started the piano quite, quite young. But in terms of opera, I, yeah, I think I had the, the usual sort of pop culture associations and fully got to know it a bit better at university. Um, I, I went to, to Oxford Uni and I studied music and on my first year I had a course that was called uh, Strauss and the Representation of Women and it was talking about the yeah the representation of women in his operas and particularly Salome um, and I didn't know any of Strauss's music and it's kind of particularly the the earlier music the early operas are like I mean, it's just like so overwhelming. It's just incredible. I watched, I watched Salome and was, yeah, the scale, I think, just took me, took me aback. It was just like incredible. It was huge. The harmonies were sort of all over the place and couldn't quite work out what's going on with that. Um, the vocal sort of technique and just, just a yeah, incredible command of skill was, was overwhelming. And, and obviously the subject matter was quite grand as well. So it was this incredible, like dramatic musical experience uh, which I didn't really know in that way. I mean, I guess musical theatre was a useful touchstone in terms of a reference. Um, and But then since then, I've got to know a few more operas and um, I love the music of Thomas Ades and his recent opera, The Exterminating Angel, at the, I think it was the Royal Opera House, was was really, really awesome. And I've only known his instrumental music before that. And then so to hear his his opera with all of the staging and the kind of almost visual illusions there, optical illusions, um, alongside these incredible singers um, was just was just astounding. I think bringing together all of those elements um, is what can make it a really exciting experience. You just named two of like the greatest operas, um, in my opinion. Yeah, for the for the purpose, <laughs> we're getting lots of nods here. Yeah. On, on the, like, yes, what a great good. one to start with, also Salome, because it's just, especially as like a young adult, it just has mm. everything. It has like a crazy storyline. It has amazing music, and it's just like the story is so easy to follow because it's. Well, it's not relatable. I don't think many people really want to ask for no. um, their father's prisoner's head to be cut off so he can give you a kiss. But, you know, whatever. You know, it's just like... But just the idea of, like, something that's so out there but can be so visually appealing and the music is so incredible. And now also, I think, um, just with the way social media works, with people always presenting the same songs with, like, all their mm -hmm. harmonies, you know, mm -hmm. those reels mm -hmm. that keep going around. Yeah. It's totally the world that Strauss... Yeah started so i think that that could be like if you're looking for harmonies yeah. it's definitely a place to go yeah. thomas addis is incredible yeah <laughs> yeah yeah 100 percent. let's talk a little bit about the road to become a uh pianist and composer 
What came first and was there a defining moment for you wanting to pursue this as your career? Yeah, so I guess I started as a, I started learning piano. That was my first engagement with music really when I was about um, six or seven. My mum was quite keen on, on having, on sort of having music in my life. So I started piano um, and I was quite obsessive. I really enjoyed working on pieces and, and just spent a lot of time at the instrument. Um, and I think in that, in that process, I started to, to try out stuff and to play with the pieces I was playing and, and that felt quite natural. And then from that, I guess that was, you know, you could formally say those, those experiences, uh, which particularly I think younger um, instrumentalists, younger le sort of learners will engage with more naturally perhaps than, than more advanced learners, just improvising with the piece. That experience was kind of imp improvisation. And so from there, I guess I kind of um, started to really enjoy that, that sort of actively creative component of, of making, making the music in a sense. Um, and then I was really fortunate that my, my dad, when I was in my, I think, early teens, bought me um, Sibelius, the software, the music notation software. And that was, that was an incredible tool to like, have um, to work with. Uh, and I, yeah, so many, I was looking back the other day, so many unfinished like orchestral pieces. And by unfinished, I mean like three bars <laughs> long or like a string quartet <laughs> that's like 20 bars long. And, um, and that was great. Just starting all of these pieces, you know, having those, those moments of inspiration was incredible. Um, and then from there, I guess I was, I, I applied to join the, the junior academy and I got in as a, as a first study composer and learned with David Knotts, the, the awesome composer there. And, and then that was more of like a formal training, I guess, where I, was exposed to what classical music can do and and all of these frameworks in place you know these types of ensembles this this lineage of composers um that you can tap into and learn from and sort of be really colorful and creative with you know in terms of your sort of orchestration or the harmonies you want to use and 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 maybe beyond that the fact that you can use all of those for like an emotional effect and you can um you can move people with with those tools with only really i guess at, at its inception just like a, a pencil and paper and then that can that can bring about these amazing changes in that I was hearing in the musicians around me at the Junior Academy that I was really fortunate to to be able to work with. So that was that was kind of my 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 journey um, sort of pre university. Mm. And how old were you when you were at Junior Ram? I was I started when I was fourteen, and I was there mm. for four years. And then um, whilst I was there, kind of was exposed to, although not involved in the, the jazz course, the, the junior jazz course, and saw it was, you know, incredible. And there were all of these young musicians. I think Jacob Collier actually might have been there at the time. He was a few years older than me. Um, and so it was very clear that this was like quite a thriving thing <laughs> if he was there. Um, and um, and <laughs> and then sort of actually I decided to... I had no to... idea he was there. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just like fangirl now. I just, I just love Jacob Collier so much. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man, I, awesome. my Jacob Collier phase was, was big. Yeah, really big. Um, <laughs> but I, yeah, so sort of seeing that, I thought, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to apply for this. And I managed to, to get in. And so then my timetable was, was split between doing this composing and the kind of classical side in the morning. And then the afternoon, I was on the jazz side um, working with, I wasn't with Jacob Collier because he's another pianist um, and he, he'd left by then. But I was with, it was basically you, you were in an ensemble. It was very performative. It was like you, you learn with your classmates, but you also form an ensemble. So there was one pianist, bass player, drummer, and then the sort of saxes, trumpets. Um, 
And so we learn in that amazing collaborative space, um, which, but we also learned a lot about theory and a lot about jazz harmony. And that was like a real baptism of fire. There were some people in the group who were on BBC Young Jazz Musician at the time. And, and I just learned so much being in the company of people who were more advanced than I was. That's, yeah, that's fantastic. At, at that age as well, to have that experience. And I guess that prepared you for, for what was to come. I mean, the next step after that, um, was Oxford, right? So you graduated from Oxford with a first-class honours before you came to RAM for your postgraduate. We'd like to know what impact did your time at university have on the composer you are today? I I mean, I, I really enjoyed my time there. It was it was kind of crazy. I think anyone who's done a university music degree um, would say that it's it's just an incredible immersion in music from all angles in the sense you're you're engaging academically with the, with the material and there are certain... Um, types of things you're exposed to in that which you don't get in school and and that's amazing and that's sort of broad I guess like just broad humanities training um, with relation to music and music history Um, and then on the side you've got all of those same classmates that you can make music with and you can create groups with and you can fit into the established molds of that university with like the orchestras or the jazz, jazz band or you know all of these things so I think that was Realizing that I could focus on that wholeheartedly was was really incredible, and I think I threw myself at it, and I did a lot of singing. So I did um, I musical directed a jazz vocal group called the Oxford Gargoyles, um, and that was an amazing tool to both sing and, and arrange for. And then I set up an ensemble called um, Baker's Dozen, which was like a thirteen piece um, contemporary ensemble. Uh, with like drums and bass and, and sort of some of the more jazz or non-classical instruments alongside a string quartet and some um, brass instruments and some woodwind with the intention to get composers from Oxford to write for the group um, and then put on concerts of that music. Um, and and it, was, it was a great way, I guess, to, to form this community of, of, of people. And it was nice to give other composers the opportunity to write for an ensemble like that and to, to get repeat performances, which is obviously yeah. quite a difficult thing as a composer when you're quite detached often as a classical composer from the from the performers and from the sort of ambitions of that group or of that ensemble so to give you know five or six performances of these pieces through the year and to get some decent recordings was amazing and to have a kind of set list of 45 minutes that was like our music was was really was really awesome and i think you know groups like um bang on a can uh, the american um ensemble and um, yeah, and, and artists like Nico Mooley, composer, um, I think really, really inspired me in that sense of, of wanting to form these communities. I think it's so kind of valuable to bridge the gap between composers and performers. That's really interesting. Yeah, that's really true. I, first of all, I love the name Baker's Dozen. That's amazing. <laughs> um, but it is like, I think one of those things where people think it's still so taboo to go and approach a composer or perform new music but a group that like you guys that's what you do and then to be able to have like a 45 minute set list of like Mm. your music is such a rewarding experience and then you feel like you've accomplished way more than just a concert it's incredible to to form your own group as well like must be quite liberating and and free yeah it really was and and yeah absolutely you are very active in jazz classical and new music settings can you share some of your key music musical influences? Absolutely. Um, uh, yeah, I I, um, I I think I am really drawn to uh, to musicians who are 
who are really directly kind of creative and in charge of their creative vision, which I guess seems quite quite abstract and vague, but particularly like improvisers, I think I find really appealing musicians who are who are bridging that gap between their performing and their their composing, their sort of um, making or making or creating music, I guess. Um, so the the jazz trumpeter Miles Davis, um, I was a huge fan of in my teens, um, and his second great quintet. So there's there's pianist um, Herbie Hancock, um, drummer Tony Williams, bassist Ron Carter, and sax player Wayne Shorter. They just kind of played the same music for about ten years, um, and there's about do- like dozens of records of it, dozens of live recordings, and you hear pieces you know, like standards like Autumn Leaves or My Funny Valentine. Um, evolved from sort of four minute short um, short sort of recordings in the studio very you know very much like okay take six here we go to then these extremely raw versions at, at sort of small clubs around America uh, eight years later like 20 minute versions of My Funny Valentine um, and you don't you know it's at points like the plates are louder than the than the music making and there's like a real sense of of this happening this happening and, and, and this being captured like a live experience being captured so hearing that, I guess it's similar to with with um, really great classical performers uh, performing a piece that is kind of re- associated with them. Someone like um, uh, Janine Janssen, I think, the uh, violinist who plays uh, Britain Valenkenshetter a lot. And I remember hearing her play that at the proms and she's recorded that and she's performed that so many times live. And I imagine for someone like her, that's... Um, there's something really special about hearing it evolve and hopefully the same for, for audience members sort of listening, you know, so that, so those kind of musicians and then Anna, Anna Meredith as well, the composer, um, who's written, um, tons of awesome music for classical groups, but then it has her own pop group that she tours the world with. Um, I think that's really, really awesome to combine those two. Um, but yeah. And then like Bach and Beethoven, uh, are great as well. Really sort of have a special place in my heart as well. <laughs> <laughs> it's so great. I feel the composers that we've spoken to on here, it's so great to hear that they're all open to this fusion of genres and the ability to compose for different genres as well. It's not, you know, one clear road. It's really refreshing mm. to hear that. But you mentioned that um, a lot of your work is built on improvisation and it's such a admirable skill uh would you say that you had a natural ability for this or was it something that you trained to do um i think i i really enjoyed it so i naturally from quite an early age gravitated towards doing it a lot and i think i probably was fortunate to have yeah to to grasp some of the theoretical elements a bit more yeah quite quite well i think i think i was fortunate in that respect and um and also felt quite open creatively to trying stuff out but i but i think on top of that you can definitely train improvising. It's it's like a sort of core core tradition in in a lot of types of music and definitely in jazz. The the sort of tradition of transcribing, you know, taking down what you like from a certain record, working out what you like, and then really really working on that and um, getting it into getting it on paper or getting it under your fingers and then exploring that idea. It might be like four four bars from a recording or something like that. Just and then and then trying to play around with that and get that sort of expand your toolkit. I guess by by doing that um is is something that i've engaged in a lot as well and i think yeah i think it's easy isn't it to think that with improvising that that what you're seeing is kind of some sort of incredible creative openness from from the practitioner but it might it's probably as well the result of a lot of almost like lab time where they've just spent time experimenting in 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 the practice room and working out what they like and 
and having that relationship between listening and um and the input of, of playing in the room and and sort of constantly working on that craft um and i think that's in a way that makes it amazing because it's like all of this hard work previously um but for a long time that produces this really spontaneous result on stage um I, yeah i really love that back and forth it's interesting because classical music used to have so much improvisation and it's as if it, we desaturated the market of classical music and we lost this amazing ability to say here is something that you know you know and you love and now play with it but the fact that you're able to bring it back and the fact that you're able to then see how to work with it by doing it with jazz but that doesn't mean that like it's a closed door because it's just found like i remember when we were learning music history back in the day um it was all about improvisation that's why there's like variations of concertos and operas and we're all very familiar with them but we just don't pick up our vocal instruments and do them as much anymore in yeah. classical music yeah, yeah. I mean yeah, I exactly. think we're speaking to you and neither of us have really experience at all in improvisation so it's fascinating to to hear you talk about it and how it how it all works because as you say on the surface in a jazz club for example you see someone improvising and it just looks so easy and free and it's just flowing out of their fingers um but to hear that there's you know there's a lot of lab time there as you say it's uh it's fascinating it's not just walking up on the day yeah <laughs> yeah and I, I think that's really that's really interesting in terms of the the classical like some of these like core classical models like a concerto actually originally being that being that sort of um framework to improvise in, in, you know, in a kind of cadenza, it would be, you know, it might, the performer might spend a lot of time both working on um, the notes, but then also at that point deciding to, to write their own thing or to, or to even improvise their own, um, their own recording. Um, I remember watching a documentary made by an improviser called Derek, Derek Bailey, I think it's on YouTube, where one of the segments is of this Baroque, uh, like harpsichordist, I think, playing with the Academy of Ancient Music, perhaps, I might be wrong. Um, and he, um, he gets to the cadenza and he just starts improvising. He just improvises the cadenza. And then after that, they come back in, um, you know, he cues it with a kind of trill and then they're back in with the, with the orchestra. And I just think that's really the idea, as you say, that, that, uh, you know, that is what was common practice back in the day, I think is, is really amazing. Speaking of, um, improvising on stage, you've already performed on some of the UK's leading jazz and classical platforms such as Ronnie Scott's Wigmore Hall, Royal Festival Hall, as well as BBC Radio and Jazz FM, just to name a few, because, like, why not? Um, what do you love about performing? Yeah, wow, big, big, um, big area. It's funny, isn't it, trying to, trying to think about, trying to put into words what this kind of impulse is that, that drives us all, you know. Um, but I think, I think there's definitely the connection element, sort of collaborating with other people is, is really great and and being able to be vulnerable with another musician um in a context that doesn't involve words i wonder whether that can that there's a strong sense of connection there a sense of um compassion you're building that might be even deeper sometimes than than with an, a, a normal conversation um but then i guess more more from a, a self you know a personal point of view um i just love um i love uh you know but performing for for just that that thrill of like being able to be creatively free on a on a stage and 
and explore the acoustic of that setting. So a venue, uh, you know, a chamber, a, a, a you know, chamber music venue is different from a big concert <laughs> hall. Not to say that I regularly play it <laughs> either. Like loads, I don't get these huge gigs at all. But but you know that versus playing in a in a jazz club and the way that music can can um, impact you know loads of people's night um, and bring about this mood. And I think exploring those settings through music and creating that community between audience and performers Agreed. is so Agreed. is so exciting. Yeah. Um, in early 2020, what a time, um, <laughs> you, you released, yeah, the glory days. The glory days. Um, you released your debut album, The Floating Boy, uh, which our listeners will have already heard um, earlier on in the season. Um, a little extract from that. Can you tell us uh, the inspiration behind this album and how it all came together? Absolutely. Um, I so I, I finished at, at um, Oxford University and then um, I was asked. I was commissioned to write a piece for um, both the jazz orchestra, Oxford University Jazz Orchestra, and the Oxford Gargoyles, which was the, a vocal group I was I was part of, um, to bring them together in concert. And it was originally kind of a five minute piece. Um, and I found a, a poem to set that was a, a school friend of mine, a guy called Max Thomas, called The Floating Boy, um, where sort of showing this, this, this boy kind of um, go from the comforts and the naivety of being young to then embracing, or not embracing, struggling with adulthood. Um, and it seemed like a kind of seed for something broader. Um, so sort of long story short, I kind of found a few more poems uh, from different areas and different sort of nations and then... Um, created a kind of narrative um, of a boy's life from start to finish uh, with four poems and um, and yeah and then just and then the piece that was supposed to be five minutes became about 30 minutes because I got carried away and then spent a lot of 2019 slightly balancing my masters at the Royal Academy with um, <laughs> with writing this piece that was just quite mammoth in a sense um, and that I learned so much by doing that, but it was, yeah. Hopefully, hopefully, it's it's um a sort of interesting journey through the um through the thirty minutes um sort of documenting this boy, um sort of growing through life and um and working with those musicians was incredible. To work with students um in that setting in that kind of album recording setting, it was a, it was a recording of a live performance, um was amazing because they there you know there was no shortage of like ability or or talent or any of any of those any of that expertise but there was so much enthusiasm as well and there was so much willingness to to kind of throw themselves at this thing and we had we had a few workshops together and they they just yeah they, they really rose to the to the occasion and so many of them are incredible professional musicians now you know um and and that was just that was a really special time and then i ended up self-releasing that and um you know that whole experience was was really unique and it was great to to have kind of had that release at the end of um at the end of that really exciting period you must have been so glad to have gotten it out there before yeah like yeah and to have recorded the the live performance of that as well um must have been really special now i was going to ask about that though knowing that you were recording the live performance as the album and that's what would be released was there was that what you would have preferred 
than like taking it into mm. a studio and and doing that do you think it had benefit recording it live it de- yeah i think it it's yeah it's a really um interesting one like it, it's sort of i think it has side effects which are which can be massive benefits i think in the sense that you you have to let go of like a lot of control and when the project is as big as that if you're dealing with the studio and you're dealing with 30 i don't know how many musicians probably about 30 musicians um it would be so tempting when they're all on site or you know a, a lot of them are on site at a certain time to to want to record one bit again and um and actually doing it as a live recording and obviously being thorough before that but then accepting that the performance is what will go on the recording was quite freeing i think and it meant that the only time we had in the studio was was like the post post uh, production and then you, you just have to accept that if someone dropped their phone at one moment in the in the performance and then there's a bit of a bang or if someone squeaked a note you know that you you know it's it, it's a bit painful for five seconds and then you you just kind of let go of it because you have to um it's authentic i guess you know <laughs> it's authentic it's, ca- it's captured the moment it's spontaneous yeah that's yeah all of those things <laughs> i actually think it would have been like it's kind of it brings you back into that thing about performing and the atmosphere and it gives you that atmosphere of being in a if someone drops their phone or you know the audience roaring or the clink of glasses or something like that mm-hmm. you get the atmosphere of being in a nightclub again and just a nightclub. A, sorry, a jazz club. I was a nightclub. When was the last time I went to a nightclub? I don't even never been. But just like that concept of feeling like you're there yeah. does kind of authenticate the music a bit more. It does indeed, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Speaking of projects and performances, you perform and collaborate with the famous cellist Jaku Kenneth Mason, who's also a Ram family member. Can you tell us more about your upcoming projects and how this partnership came about? Yeah, um, so we uh, we worked together, we played together in a in a classical chamber group in Junior Academy. Um, I, we played some piano quartets together. And um, so we played some Brahms and some Foray and, and he was already kind of, um, he was already sort of smashing it in his own way, sort of, he was, he kind of had this, a bit, a bit of a, like a mini reputation that he'd kind of something like won the cello prize at the age of 12 or something. And then, yeah, I just, has, I just kind of, yeah, there was, a, there was like a prodigy vibe. Um, and it was so, it was incredible to be able to work with him. And, and then we, he carried on at the academy. He, he continues studying his undergrad there. Um, and I went to uni and then came back to, my, to do my master's in his final two years um, studying there. And in the meantime, he'd, he'd been doing a lot of, um, alongside his his more classical recordings he'd released some um sort of non-classical stuff and he's a he's obviously a big fan of um bob marley so he's released a few covers of bob marley songs and um yeah he'd, he'd engaged with that side of things and i i suggested that we collaborate a bit and perhaps produce a program that looked to combine some um some classical elements with some more improvised elements and some non-classical music and uh, sort of centering around the theme of song so we've kind of we've created this program i guess that is that is connected through through it all of it being quite lyrical but the actual type of piece that you're hearing might might change quite a lot so we've got some some bark and some boulanger nadia boulanger um alongside some some jazz standards and some um some folk tunes that we include a lot more improvisation on um and so recently we had a performance in um, in Peckham at Bold, Bold Tenancies Festival. Um, and yeah, it was the, the, the first proper public opportunity we got to perform together. And 
yeah, it was such a release. It was so nice after after having not performed for such a long time to then to then perform and to perform with such a great musician who has got you know no shortage of classical chops but can also improvise and sort of be as spontaneous as he wants to alongside that kind of precision and that focus on excellence so that's really um really special for me yeah and i hope to see you guys performing a lot more in the future oh, thank you. closing questions now we'd, we'd kind of like to ask what do you love most about being a composer another big question a composer and a pianist and do you have any words of advice for young musicians wanting to make a career out of it? Yeah, I, I really enjoy uh, moving between um, composing and, and, and performing. And I, I love I love the sense of back and forth, I think, between um, between that time in the practice room and then that time on the stage. I'm sure you both feel the same, just like yeah. working at your own thing can feel so tunnel vision, but at the same time you get to really control things and, and work on your crafts. And then being able to let go on the stage can be an incredible sort of um, experience. And that kind of 95% practice room versus 5% um, performance can feel, it, when, it, when it's at its best, can feel really satisfying and, and like a really good challenge. So I love that. And I love, um, I love improvising, working on working my stuff in, in that lab, lab setting and then sort of going on stage and being able to be, be free with that. So that back and forth, I, I, really, I really love. Um, and... Yeah, in terms of any any advice, I think um, I've tried to um, sort of bring my various influences into something of like a coherent vision and something that I can say that in most of my projects, I am representing most of myself, perhaps. And I think that's for, for, for any sort of performers who maybe in a classical setting who are interested in composing and interested in bringing their music or even improvising into that setting, I think I'd, I'd always say that it's, it's fun to embrace the challenge of trying to bring it into the settings that you're already a part of. So let's say you've, you've got a, a, you know, let's say you're a classical singer and you've got a collaboration with a pianist and you've got some gigs coming up. Why not, if you've been composing something or working on some improvisation, why not bring that into your performance, fit it into the theme and make it make sense in the, in the context that you already thrive um, perhaps. And then I think it doesn't, it's, it maybe can can be quicker than you think for people to uh, clock that you do that stuff and that you're really interested in that kind of stuff. And then you can gain a bit of a, hopefully, a, probably a positive reputation for, for in, involving uh, that exciting other part of yourself in. And so I think, I'd, yeah, I'd, I'd definitely encourage anyone who, who's invested in other elements um, to, to kind of bring them into what they do. Incredible. Bringing us around to our last question: um, Where can people find you, and find out what you, where your next projects are, and follow along? So my website is harrybakermusic.com, uh, and on social media, I've embraced stupidity and gone for at Barry Haker a lot of the time. So my Instagram is at Barry Haker. Twitter is, I think, at Barry underscore Haker, um, and then my profile. Yeah, if you t if you type in Harry Baker music, I think you find that on Facebook as well. So, so yeah, if you if yeah, one way to distinguish me from other people with a very common name. <laughs> <laughs> it's a that. great way to do it. Yeah. I thought I was like, that's brilliant. Yeah, <laughs> amazing. Well, Harry, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure to chat and hear about all of your exciting projects and your journey um, to becoming a composer and pianist. It's been great. Thanks so much for having me, Ashley and Avi. Cheers.
Well, 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 to round off Harry's episode, he's here to share his final piece in this Composer of the Month series. We have certainly enjoyed getting to know a brand new composer and we hope you have too. So take it away, Harry. Hi, I'm Harry Baker. I'm an improvising pianist and composer active in jazz, classical and new music settings. And I'm so pleased to be composer of the month for the awesome AA Opera podcast this month, where I'll be talking a bit about my compositions and some of the background behind them. So this week, I wanted to talk about Moments, which I wrote on the Young Composers Scheme with the National Youth Choirs of Great Britain back in 2019 for the Fellowship Octet, which is a brilliant group of eight young singers. And I wrote a poem for this piece, kind of about how we engage with with the world, but in particular the natural world, how we experience it, uh, given that digital technology is such a constant in our lives, constantly vying for our attention. So the first line of the poem is, moments used to be experiences. We used to directly experience this, but now there's constantly something, an addictive digital item nearby that we can grab to take us out of that present moment. And I think, you know, things like mindfulness and meditation are, are really useful to counterbalance tech's grip, but it's, isn't it, it's so difficult to, to avoid being sucked in. And we were really fortunate, um, my fellow young composers and I, so Shruti Rajaseka, Joanna Ward and Lily Harris, to have our compositions that we wrote during the scheme recorded and released on the awesome contemporary classical record label NMC Recordings. So uh, it's available to, to stream on Spotify and Apple Music. And here is Moments. 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 Moments.
So, this week's questions, you look so serious. You're like meditating into this question and trying to figure out an answer. The first thing that Ashley and I ever did together in the recording realm was try and make an opera synopsis video for my YouTube channel about what the actual story and actual plot of Vixen is. Abby, I'm not gonna lie, that I totally left my mind. But, and I had my little grasshopper out yeah. bit on. Amazing. We really tried. Um, it was impossible. It is the most difficult opera to summarise. Yes, it is. And if you've seen our recent IGTV, we interviewed the cast of Vixen from Opera Holland Park. And even those guys really struggled. Um, but lucky for us, we're going to try and answer that now. And we can just poach, hey, poach, poach. Oh, hey, 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 poach what they said. But one thing I will say is that when we saw that production, we were like, oh, maybe this, oh, maybe that. Yeah. It's open to interpretation. It is. So the actual question was, can you summarize the plot of Vixen in three sentences? When Vixen was written, it was written after a... Illustrator wrote a comic strip about a vixen who does things and like 
the composer Janacek then put it together into an opera. So obviously, it was not like a cohesive, coherent plot or a libretto. It was just like things that came out in the newspaper. Yes. With that being said, I'm gonna try. I'm gonna try, it and then you're gonna, and then you're gonna do it. How's okay. That yeah, that sounds okay. good. Vixen is born, uh, and this hunter, forester, kind of becomes obsessed with this vixen and brings her into his own house. She's a bit problematic, hence the name Vixen, I think. Yeah. And his wife doesn't like it. It's kind of like bringing an adopted child into a house by only asking one person, which is what we came up with during the is production. It ever, is it an adopted child? Not an adopted child. I'm talking like a Jon Snow situation. Yes. Situation. Um, yeah, a Jon Snow situation. Then she gets kicked out. Um, but the like forester keeps looking for her. She falls in love, and then his best friend, the hunter, shoots her down. Okay. I mean, despite the fact that was about seven sentences, <laughs> we'll we'll just put that to one side. But that was a good description of the actual plot. Yeah. I think what became more clear to me after seeing that production was that. It, it does highlight the circle of life, which as some people mentioned, but jokes aside, yeah, it does because you've got the vixen that is captured at the beginning at, at, as a young cub, and then the vixen has a cub, and then right at the end, it ends on this whole, well, the, the, the forest is just going to catch yeah. another cub sort of thing. So it's like, it's that, not the forester, but do you know what yeah. I mean? It's kind of like Bambi. A little, yeah. Yeah. A bit more like Bambi. Yeah. Anyway. I think we did it. I think that's fair enough. Yeah. Um, and if you want more clarity, go see the Mason. <laughs> go see the opera. Well, this week's quiz is a little bit different. What is your Hogwarts house percentage? Now, no, there's not a Harry Potter the opera. One day. (laughs) One day. But I feel this segment of the podcast really came from the Hogwarts Harry Potter housing quiz that is so popular online. So we're going to take one today. And I have made a loose connection because today's (laughs) guest, Harry Baker. Let's do a Harry Potter quiz. (laughs) Why not? I do have to say before we start, though... I don't understand why people say that operas are so long, but they're willing to go to Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, which is like, how many hours? It's two it's, parts? It's a yeah, whole day? Yeah. 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 Opera. It's like the just... ring cycle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, let's kick this off. So, you've made it to Hogwarts. Woo-hoo! woo Which means you've already bought a wand from Ollivander's. What material is at its core? Now, I was obsessed with this. I, I was always thinking about this. So, the Phoenix Feather... Dragon heartstring or unicorn hair? Well, you you know your answer already. Of course I do. Unicorn. Yeah. All right. I think I'm a dragon heartstring. Okay. During the end of year exams, you notice that one of your classmates was using an enchanted quill. You come top of the class anyway, but they are second. What do you do? Tell the professor immediately. Cheating is wrong no matter what. 
nothing, but if I hadn't come top of the class, I'd definitely tell the professor. <laughs> Encourage the other students to admit what they've done to the professor. Give them a high five for managing to sneak the quill into the exam. What would she say? Oh, I kind of think knowing me as a student, as in high school, uh, give them a high five for managing to sneak it. Would you? I mm. think so. What about you? So for me, if I hadn't come top of the class, that would really piss me off. <laughs> so I'm going to say nothing, but if I hadn't come top of the class, I'd definitely tell the professor. <laughs> you would be most hurt if a person called you weak, ignorant, unkind, or boring. Oh my god, Ooh. I would actually be hurt for most of these. Mm. What about you? Weak. Yeah, I think weak. Weak. What I don't like, if someone calls you weak, you've got no idea what shit that person has yeah. had to go through. Um, so that would really bug me. Yeah. Yeah. Weak. weak. You're locked in a duel with a skilled opponent. They fire an unknown spell at you and you shout, Expelliarmus. Well done. Protego. Mm -hmm. Stupefy. Or Crucio. I'd say stupefy. I would say Expelliarmus just because I love saying that word. <laughs> Which of these Dumbledore quotations speaks to you? Pity the living and above all those who live without love. Words are, in my not-so-humble opinion, our most inexhaustible source of magic. It matters not what someone is born, but what they grow to be. Ooh. <sighs> it does not do to dwell on dreams and forget to live. Oh my god. Dumbledore. <laughs> what are you saying? I think it does not matter where someone is born, but what they grow to be. Is that what you want to say? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the first Quidditch match of the season is approaching and you can't wait to get involved. What role are you playing? Oh. Ooh. Seeker, I want the glory. Chaser, I like to be involved and work as part of a team. Beater, <laughs> I have all the power. I, I like having all that power. I'll be in the crowd making sure support and morale is high. Okay. Definitely not going to be in the crowd. Definitely want to be playing the game. Oh, it's between a chaser and a seeker, which I feel like contradict each other. I'm going to go for seeker. I want all the glory. And that's purely based on when I used to play a lot of football or hockey. Always like to be like in the striker position. I, like I would like to be the goalie in the sense. Mm. Uh, I'm going to say chaser. Okay. And finally... We know that the sorting hat takes into account your preferences. So which Hogwarts house do you feel you identify with most closely? I'm definitely a Gryffindor. But I feel like I'm going to come out Hufflepuff. I, I'm in exactly the same place. I'm going to go Gryffindor. I think we both... That's the one everybody wants, right? No, I know people who don't like other ones. Like Slytherin? No, like Ravenclaw and Hufflepuff. Oh, really? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh. Let's but put... let's see. Oh, wow. To okay. Okay, it gives you a breakdown. So I'm going to read yours. Yeah. Oh, right, this is yours. Yes. Never mind. I don't know what I'm saying. Okay, Avi. Yeah. You... Of 31% Ravenclaw, 
30% Gryffindor. So very, very close there between yeah. Ravenclaw and Gryffindor. 21% Slytherin and 18% Hufflepuff. You believe above all in the importance of wisdom, which is why you undoubtedly belong in Ravenclaw. But your sense of adventure means you may also have an affinity for Gryffindor House. You are a thrill seeker. You love to travel and there's nothing more exciting to you than new experiences. And believe that adventure is essential in the pursuit of knowledge. You are brave, but would never intentionally put yourself in danger, placing you firmly in Ravenclaw. Your slight compatibility with Slytherin House suggests a determination to succeed, though not at the expense of traits from your more dominant houses. See, I, there are things that like I don't agree with that because I would do things that scare me and I would go to places that would be scary in order to like do It things. says you are a thrill seeker. Exactly, which doesn't really go with what they said later, which is like, you know, you wouldn't put yourself in danger. I would. I have. Yeah. So definitely going to stick with my feelings. I think you should, Abby, because reading that, I don't think it massively uh, relates to you. No. Okay, so you are 34% Gryffindor. Hey! Mm-hmm. 26% Hufflepuff. 24% Slytherin, and 16% Ravenclaw. Whoa, that puts us at, like, opposite ends of the spectrum. Yeah. Which we're not, I don't feel. We're really not. So you have all the loyalty of a Hufflepuff, but your affinity for Gryffindor ensures that your loyalty is fierce. You would do almost anything for your loved ones, even if it has a negative effect on, your personally, on, on you personally. This means that... Your friends and family members often come to you when in need, but it's also important to remember to spend time taking care of yourself. You wear your heart on your sleeve and impulsively act on your emotions and without fear of consequence. Speaks for both of us. Yeah. Maybe just something went wrong in the calculation for yours. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely a Gryffindor. so much to harry for being here for the last four episodes of his music and in um discussion this week it was great to get to know him yeah and of course thank you to you guys for tuning in we will be back next week with our season finale but before then be sure to check us out on social media we are aa opera everywhere and be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast that would really help us out yeah and if you would like to uh extra support us check out our patreon which is www.patreon.com forward slash aa opera for some exciting sneak peeks into what we're up to and you can also sign up to our newsletter because it's uh, coming back into the mailboxes first monday of september it is indeed so don't miss out on that guys we'll see you next week bye-bye bye-bye